This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Wilkins. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today I have Pamela Fierce-Walsh with me. Pamela is the Senior Advisor on Conflict and Critical Minerals and U.S. Representative to the Kimberly Process. She works at the U.S. State Department. We're going to take a deep dive into the Kimberly process, talk about what it is, Kimberly's role in it, how it was developed, how it relates to conflict mineral initiatives, and how the U.S. State Department supports the Kimberly initiative around conflict minerals going forward. If you are in the compliance space at all, this is a critical uh, issue for you. It involves uh, and revolves around sourcing. So even if you're not in supply chain compliance and you're in ABC compliance, this is a podcast that will benefit you. Thanks for listening. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with uh, Mike Volkoff, and we are here today to discuss the verdict in the Hoskins trial which was announced on Friday, November 8th. Mike, uh, welcome. Well, thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Always good to see you. Mike, this case has a long and tortured history, and I really don't want to go into the procedural history or kind of the legal questions that uh, were raised in the appeal and going back to the um, original trial court. But we had a trial, I think, of uh, just over a week, and we had a jury verdict in one day. And the first thing that struck me about this case was when you are in a criminal trial and you see a jury verdict in a day or less, it is never good for the defendant. So I was wondering if you might just talk about jury psychology and what does all that mean in a case like this? Well, first off, uh, knowing the long tortured history of all the appeals and everything, uh, I think for uh, the trial team, this must have been an incredible, exhilarating result. I mean, Dan Kahn has now been promoted out of the um, FCPA unit, and he's now the senior deputy chief in the, fra- in the overall fraud section, but also uh, Lorinda LeRae, uh, who's in the FCPA section and now is an assistant chief. Uh, they've been working on this case for years, and this must have been an incredible you know, result for them. They must have been really happy. Um, I'll tell you what, though, to have like a complicated FCPA case with lots of documents, uh, you know, complicated jury instructions, and then also, um, you know, some cooperating witnesses who testified so that, you know, this was uh, this was a meaty trial. But to have a jury come back in one day uh, after one day of deliberation, that means Uh, I mean, I don't want to use this expression because it carries so much political weight, but it is kind of like a slam dunk here for the government. Um, And I think it was a sharp rebuke of the defense and the defendant. Um, And the other thing that, I mean, there's parts of this, Tom, that are like, there's a lot of jury appeal to it, but then there's parts that are not, which is 
you know, by the time we get to trial, this is 15 years. You know, the incident occurred in 2003, 2004, the conduct. And you also have a 69-year-old, you know, guy from the United Kingdom who probably, you know, doesn't have a criminal record. Um, but yet the government was able to tie him into a pretty comprehensive uh, bribery scheme. So whatever, however it was presented, uh, the government has to feel good that not only did they convict him of 11 of 12 counts, I think, or except for one money laundering count, um, and then to have the jury return the verdict so quickly, that is really sort of a slap in the face of the defense. The jury basically saying, forget it. We don't believe anything you told us. And uh, as a matter of fact, we're with the government all the way. So, Mike, you were right. He was found guilty on six counts of violating the FCPA, three counts of money laundering, and two counts of conspiracy. He was acquitted on one uh, money laundering count. Now, um, usually in an FCPA case, the if, if it does go to the case, or at least the, the, the fact question would be, uh, were there bribes in, uh, paid and was there corruption in violation of the FCPA? That really wasn't the issue here. The issue here was, was Mr. Hoskins an agent of a U.S. subsidiary? So it almost seemed like uh, the defense was, yeah, I was in charge. I did all these things, uh, but it was me. I wasn't uh, uh, under anyone else. No one else made the call. When you have that kind of defense, really, what's that? Uh, first of all, is that likely to be successful? But what really, what's the effect on the jury of saying, "Yeah, it was me, but it was all me; it wasn't anybody else." But all, and also, Tom, it's kind of like, um, let okay, I did all this conduct, but let me off on this technicality. You know, I'm not the. Uh, I was the boss. I wasn't an agent. The government is saying that I'm an agent of a subsidiary. But I wasn't. I was the guy in control. I ran the whole thing. So therefore, let me off. Let me go home back to the United Kingdom. And I'll tell you what, when a defendant gets up there, well, he didn't testify. It appears like he didn't testify. But when the defense acknowledges, hey, I did all this. Okay, I did the bad conduct. Everything that you say I did and more. I control. And even saying I controlled it is kind of like, hey, I was the big boss. I was the I was the guy rolling this whole thing out there. It just makes him unsympathetic in front of the jury. And so to me, it, these are like technical defenses that I've seen defendants try to run and they never work with a jury. Um, there's if, if a jury buys a technical thing like, hey, I'm really the not an agent in quotes of the subsidiary. What's very clear here is the government must have had some pretty effective arguments back. In other words, to like sort of say. Okay, here's a separate subsidiary. Here's how they were structured. They had a board of directors, which is usually not that active. But, you know, they had a legal formation. They paid certain taxes as a subsidiary. There were other people who were the officers of it. So this guy was clearly the agent of this other organization. And I think to say otherwise is such a technical loser that uh, the jury clearly was not persuaded very much. And you know what? Uh, it may be that in the end, the defense is trying to preserve a technical issue that they brought up on appeal and they won part of the appeal and they think they can win the rest of the appeal by bringing it up this way. On the other hand, they could have negotiated a guilty plea with the right to appeal, you know, the guilty, the, uh, the legal issue, 
and tried to get the government to agree to it that way. But I don't know all the ins and outs of the interactions. But I'll tell you what, uh, and I, I promise you this guy's going to get some serious jail time uh, for putting this judge through all of this. You can trust trust me. that, And I think you told me, Tom, that one of the cooperators got a fair amount of time in right. the case. So this guy's going to get more than that cooperator. You know, Mike, oftentimes we focus on uh, the law and we have a lot of discussions. You know, I both blog, we both podcast on the legal aspects of the SCPA. But when you're in front of a jury, it's really you have to shift your, your mindset, don't you, a little bit in terms of the impact what you put in front of a jury is going to have and then how you build your case around the evidence? Because I was wondering if you might walk us through how a prosecutor would think through a case like this. Well, the biggest challenge that a prosecutor faces is explaining to the jury why this is bad conduct. Because, you know, we, you know, we always hear that, well, wait a minute, all the U.S. people, we believe that everybody's paying bribes overseas. And that's how you get business. Um, so I think there's a hurdle, first off, in terms of corruption by explaining the FCPA and why it's important or not, not having a legal discussion, but showing to the jury how important this is. Um, and you have to meet the elements, obviously, of the crime. So there's still that hurdle, though, of why do we care about this kind of conduct? And they have to, dem- they have to show some seriousness uh, as to this and providing some context. And I think it probably came out, uh, you know, a trial that Alstom itself settled it. There are other defendants who got jail time in this case. And I think, you know, that made it more persuasive. Now, then you have to put on the evidence. And I, I'm going to, I think in the U.S. right now, there's a greater sensitivity to the word corruption. And I think it's just the political time that we live in. And with allegations, you know, swirling around uh, in White House, the White House around in D.C., and all the word corruption, people are starting to get more sensitive to it. So I think actually uh, bringing an FCPA case and using the word corruption uh, becomes a little bit more attractive. Uh, and then what's very clear uh, through the evidence is that they knew they were doing something wrong. In other words, they used email communications that used code words. You know, they referred to commissions or uh, rewards. There were, uh, you know, some of the language that they used in the emails, which clearly was designed to cover the word bribe. And I think that showed that a consciousness of guilt such that a jury would look at it and say, this guy knew he was breaking the law. He knew he was doing something wrong, and he tried to hide what he was doing. He wasn't being fully transparent like the defense you were mentioning, Tom. You know, hey, I did this and I was the boss. Well, you did it, but you also tried to hide your conduct and you tried to use code words. And one thing I had heard from in the Alstom case in general is that they had a very sophisticated set of code words that was used throughout the company with regard to all the bribery schemes. A couple of the things I've heard you talk about in terms of both doing an investigation and then thinking about the facts you uncover in an investigation, you always talk about, always refer back to the statute, refer back to the law. What are the elements of the crime? And do you have 
evidence that supports or negates any of those elements. And then other uh, technique or strategy I've heard you talk about is a timeline and literally sit down and write out a timeline so you can kind of get in your head uh, how everything happened and how it all relates together. Are those two techniques, uh, strategies you can use in front of a jury to to tell your story? Absolutely. So to me, having a chronology uh, and and putting the pieces of, of events that occur on each day. I know it sounds rudimentary, but literally writing that out or typing it out and seeing it, and you will see patterns and waves, little facts fit together. But ultimately, the success of a trial lawyer, as you know, Tom, is the ability to tell a story, a coherent story. And that's what a jury wants to hear. And here where you – the thing that made this case, I think, strong was – they had really good emails, documentary evidence, and then they had people to come in and explain who were some of the writers or recipients. And you have a guy sitting there with a plea agreement who got a, you know, got sentenced to jail but got a break for cooperating and saying, this is what we meant by this. This is what we meant by that. So it made it an interesting trial in the sense that it's not all documents, but you have real people coming in and explaining what they were trying to do. And in the end here, look, it was a pretty ballsy sort of consultant A, consultant B, two consultants. And uh, it was a pretty, you know, um, egregious type of bribery scheme in the end. I mean, it was just, there was no, they didn't even try to say these consultants were providing legitimate services. They literally were hired for paying bribes. And, uh, for that reason, there's not even – it's not hard for the government – you know, oh, what a surprise they didn't run due diligence on these guys. You know what I mean? It's like you know, all the basics that we're using, none of it is there. It's just a criminal scheme. Mike, the, uh, as I recall, uh, under the FCPA, individuals can be liable for up to five years per violation. Here we have uh, three uh, guilty uh, verdicts on three counts. Arguably, that could be uh, up to 15 years. We had cooperating witnesses, uh, other defendants in this case, uh, sentenced to up to three years in jail. So would you think a sentence would come in sort of between 15 and three years? Yeah, I'd be surprised if it's much more than five or six years, maybe six years. Uh, But the other thing uh, I think was um, there were three counts of money laundering, too, which is a 20 year. I think that's zero to 20 years. I mean, the guideline calculation is going to be very high, but the judge is not going to follow it. Uh, so I think this defendant it could get six, seven years. I mean, on the other hand, uh, he's going to get a man- what's called a managerial bump, you know, because he was at the top. And there's an enhancement under the guidelines for people who are managers. And he, I mean, from the evidence, it looks like Hoskins was really, like you said, his defense was, hey, I, I ran this thing. I was the final stop here. And in some sense, it makes him out, it makes his conduct sound good. I mean, it sounds worse than it really is. You know, I mean, he's going to maybe six, seven years, but, you know, they're not in Miami. They're not in Florida where those the judges there just love to hand out huge FCPA sentences. Don't ask me why. Uh, but... Uh, this one, I, I just can't see it. But that's a pretty high one. I think it'll be in the top five, wouldn't it, Tom? Like seven or eight years, if it gets there. If it goes to eight years, I think it'll be the third highest. Yeah. 
And he's 69 years old. So whatever he gets sentenced to. Well, that's true, too. You know, that'll that'll, you know, enter into it. We don't know what his health is like. You know, there may be health issues. Who knows? Yeah. Rather unbelievably, Mike, uh, there's another FCPA trial going on this week that hasn't concluded. But what do you think this means really for the department and the message it communicates that uh, it it will stand up and go to trial now? Well, I think it sends a strong message um, that, look, when we bring a case against an individual, we're going to bring strong cases. Um, And they got criticized for not bringing enough, you know, individual cases. Uh, this is one that they really, um, you know, had to persevere through a lot of sort of fights and stuff like that to get to this trial point. But the thing that to me, this shows it was such a strong case. Once I read through the evidence that, you know, we can plead guilty and cooperate and try to cut your time way down, like try to be one of the first ones in the door and you can maybe get you know, less than a year in jail or even a probation if you're a successful cooperator. But uh, I think for the department, this gives them a lot more credibility on going to trial. I mean, you know, the department gets criticized because they don't go to trial that often and they look for guilty pleas and don't take a risk on individual cases. But here, look, they're in trial in Maryland. They're in trial. They won this in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, kudos to them. It's, it means uh, the message of deterrence towards individuals. It, I think it, it sends a strong message in that way. Think twice before you do it uh, because you may get caught and could end up in this situation. Do you think this is going to have any impact on how the department looks at internal investigations going forward? Or is this just case so fact specific that uh, that really won't come into play? Well, you know what? I think there's a lot of increased focus on internal investigations and how they're being done. And I think, you know, going back to, I think it was the chief judge from the Southern District of New York wrote that opinion in, I forgot the name of the company, but it was one of the trading cases, Forex trading cases. And uh, she raised real issues as to you know, due process rights of individuals in these internal investigations. And the, that was the Conley case. Yeah, the Conley case, right. And the outsourcing of, you know, the criminal justice system to these internal investigations. So I think there's going to be greater scrutiny of those. So I think people have to be even more careful about it. But look, what they came in with here is the internal investigation working with the Justice Department, put together some pretty strong criminal cases. I mean, they got a number of pleas, and this is the only, this was the outlier who wanted to go to trial by saying, hey, I never went into the United States. I just sat in the U.K. How can I be subject to jurisdiction in the United States? Uh, Mike, you, you've talked about uh, numerous times being the first company, first witness to come in, self-disclose, uh, admit guilt, uh, to be the first cooperator. And I always thought about it in terms of the race to the courthouse, but it also strikes me that if if you are not the first cooperator, the information you bring in may not be as valuable because other cooperators may have already given the government that information. And so you lose out on getting additional credit because the information, not that, not that it's stale, but it's simply uh, uh, the government is already aware of it. Does that work into how the government would think through uh, cooperation credit? 
Yeah, absolutely. And think about it this way, Tom. The government always wants the higher level actor. Okay, they always want the the senior person, the most senior person they can get. If your guy is a low level guy, uh, it makes total. And let's say they have a pretty good case on him or her. It makes sense to go in because if somebody cooperates above them, uh, that lower level person, then your value goes way down. And they're not going to cut a deal so much with you. Uh, they don't have as much incentive to give you as much benefits. So on the other hand, I've also seen cases where they're really not that strong. Uh, for example, in the Shot Show Sting case, you know, that was many years ago, some of those cases were really not very strong. And people held out and didn't plead. And in the end, they found out through discovery that these were pretty weak cases. And then there were problems with the cooperating witness, as we all know. And uh, in the end, the people who held out uh, did pretty well. They, everybody got all the cases dismissed, including the guilty pleas, where with, uh, people were allowed to withdraw them. Uh, so you got to be careful. And the government sort of does a dance, and you do a dance. And you got to be careful, though, about putting your client into a case as a cooperator without having a good basis to believe it. And then you, and then you have a tension there where, uh, you know, if you sit there on your hands too long, you can get, you know, left holding the bag. What was the game? Musical chairs. You're left with, you know, holding the bag. Right. And it's terrible. So that's happened. I've seen that happen to people, particularly in antitrust cases. Right. I've seen those come up with the, uh, when you have the race to the courthouse and people are trying to cooperate and their value goes down or up as things go, go along. Well, this was certainly, a, a, I think, a, a very uh, final point, exclamation point on a long and tortured case. As you said, the uh, actions giving rise to the um, uh, violations occurred in 2003. There were long uh, hearings on the legal issue that we alluded to of agency uh, up and down to the Court of Appeals additional hearings on whether uh, the case was timely brought, which actually linked out the time of the case. We had international discovery with uh, multilateral treaties, which lengthened out the time of the case. And here we are in 2019, after having events that occurred in 2003, finally getting a verdict. Um, any final thoughts on what this might mean going forward, Mike? Well, also, you know, think about it. The Alstom settlement itself was uh, late December 2014, so five years to get to a final trial. And remember, even the Alstom investigation itself like went through fits and starts because uh, they changed counsel several times. They weren't being cooperative with the government in terms of giving uh, discovery. And then it's, you know, and they paid $770 million in the end. I mean, look, the whole the history of this case is just a tortured history. And I guess to have the final exclamation is that Hoskins, after raising all these technical appeals and everything, uh, in the end, he's going to go to jail. I mean, he's going to go to jail and he's going to bank on an appeal. And, you know, for the department, this is a it, I can't say enough in terms of what a victory this must. You know, they must be so ratified to finally get to this point. I'm sure I always used to say as a prosecutor, the best thing in the world is hearing a jury come back guilty. And I can imagine Dan Kahn and uh, Lorinda 
uh, sitting there just smiling right after that verdict. It must have been amazing. Well, that seems like a great point for us to end on, Mike. So uh, thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Tom. Always good to talk to you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The Hoskins case was certainly a seminal event in FCPA jurisprudence with the uh, decision by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And this case will be interesting to see if it goes up on appeal after this verdict or Hoskins will simply uh, resolve this case with the Department of Justice. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another issue around FCPA compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.